0: The scripture is uh, Numbers 35, verses 9 through 16. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Numbers 35. Verse 9 of Numbers 35, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come over Jordan, <clears throat> into the land of Canaan, then shall ye appoint you cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the slayer may flee thither, which killeth any person that underwears." And they shall be unto you cities for refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer die not until he stand before the congregation in judgment. And of these cities which ye shall give, six cities shall ye have for refuge. Ye shall give three cities on this side of Jordan, and three cities shall ye give in the land of Canaan, which shall be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be a refuge both for the children of Israel and for the stranger." And for the sojourner among them, that every one that killeth any person unawares may flee thither. And if he smite him with an instrument of iron so that he die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. May God bless this reading of his word. Some months ago I had two parents referred to me who were not members of this church, who desired abortions for their teenage daughters. This is a very serious thing and a very growing and current thing. I believe that the Bible has a good bit to say about this, and the passage that we just read bears on it both in an indirect and direct way. In the passage that we read, we have first a provision for a provision of the law for the protection of the innocent in case of murder. Uh, man- and slaying. And then again, we had uh, the provision of the law for the punishment of the guilty in case of manslaughter. First, the uh, provision of the law for the protection of the innocent. We read of the refuge that God provided. In verse 11, then shall ye appoint you cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the slayer may flee thither which killeth any person that unawares. Six cities, three on one side of Jordan, three on another side, so located that from any point in the land uh, there was within a half a day's uh, run, let's say, a city available. Uh, Again, uh, uh, the revenger of blood is mentioned in the twelfth verse. They shall be unto you cities for refuge from the avenger. And in the 19th verse, he's referred to as the revenger of blood. They had no policemen in that day. And God uh, so established the law that uh, the person upon whom the responsibility fell to punish uh, this uh, murder, if it turned out so to be, uh, was the next of kin called here the avenger or the revenger of blood. He was duty-bound to pursue and to slay the one who had been guilty of this. The rules of the game, if that's not speaking too lightly of it, were as follows. Uh, <clears throat> around each city, from, go- from the wall out, was a thousand cubic circle. Now, this was the suburb or the border of the city. If the man crossed that thousand-cubic circle, he was safe. The minute he crossed that border, he was safe. But if the revenger of blood reached him before he crossed it, then he could slay him and would slay him. Uh, Again, uh, even having reached the city of refuge, one of these six cities, he must be then tried. The elders of the city must take him back to the town where this had occurred. They must... uh, seek witnesses, and have an investigation in the matter. If he were found innocent, he was taken back to the city of refuge to which he had fled, and he must abide in that city until the death of the high priest. That might be 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from that time. He, in effect, had to leave his family and home and remain in that city of refuge. Uh, The family could, of course, come and join him. But upon the death of the high priest, he was free to leave. If he went outside of the borders of the city prior to the death of the high priest and the avenger of blood caught him, he could slay him. These were the rules of the game that are spelled out here. Now, you notice the provision of the law for the punishment of the guilty. Uh, What the avenger of blood was to do is spelled out in the 19th verse. The avenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. When he meeteth him, he shall slay him. Again, uh, what the rulers of the city were to do. In the 30th verse of this same chapter, there was a regulation concerning witnesses. As it says, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses, but one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. It must be in the house in the mouth of two or three witnesses. There must be clear evidence of guilt. That it had been uh, murder with the intent to kill and so on. That hadn't been accidental. Again, uh, there was the uh, refusal of satisfaction. In the 31st verse, Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of the murderer, which is guilty of death. He couldn't pay his way off. Doesn't matter how much money he had. Doesn't matter what rank he was. He must die. And they were to take no satisfaction, no ransom. Again, uh, the requirement of capital punishment, the death penalty. In the last part of that 31st verse, he shall be surely put to death. And over in the uh, 19th chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy in the 19th chapter, and in the 11th through the 13th verses, you have this same matter being treated, and we have a situation where they were instructed to uh, make no reduction of the penalty. In fact, verse 11 of Deuteronomy 19, If any man hate his neighbor and lie in wait for him and rise up against him and smite him mortally that he die and fleeth into one of these cities, then the elders of his city <clears throat> shall send and fetch him thence and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Thine I shall not pity him. But thou shalt put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with thee. Uh, you notice the reason given here. Thou, <clears throat> that you are to put away the guilt of innocent blood, that it may go well with thee. Again, back in the thirty-fifth verse, excuse me, thirty-third verse of the thirty-fifth chapter of Numbers, it says, So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are. For blood, it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. The only way the land which has been polluted by this innocent blood being shed was by the blood of him that shed it. And if they did not do this, the land was defiled in the sight of God. The seriousness of this defiling is brought before us a little further on in the Old Testament when in 2 Kings we're told that uh, the Lord sent against the southern kingdom and particularly against uh, the king there, Jehoiakim, bands of the different surrounding enemies, the Chaldees, the Syrians, and so on, to destroy Judah. According to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants the prophets, surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight. For the sins of Manasseh he had been king before, according to all that he did, and also for the innocent blood that he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. It defiles the land and in time destroys the nation. Uh, the application of these things for our day, they have an ob- obvious application to our national legislation, particular legislation in the area of capital punishment. Our day has been marked by a great deal of, of effort to abolish capital punishment in our nation. State after state after state has wrestled with this. In its state legislation, many states have adopted Legislation abolishing capital punishment. Even those states that have capital punishment very, very, very rarely enforce it. They actually take a person's life. It's very rare. So that for all effects, capital punishment is uh, almost done away with in our nation. Uh, and yet, as we can see, this is unbiblical. Way back in Genesis 9-6, <clears throat> connection with the flood, God told Noah... Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And the reason he gives is that man is made in the image of God. That doesn't change. When you move from Old Testament to New Testament, the fact that man, fallen creature that he is, marred and twisted as the image of God is in this fallen creature since Adam's fall, nonetheless, still, in a broad sense, is in the image of God, and therefore is of great worth. And his life must not be taken with impunity. And because he is in the image of God, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, as an inexorable law of God. And one book, and these books are rare, which have been written in defense of the death penalty, they have a book that contains a number of essays by well-known writers defending the death penalty here in America. One of these men is C.S. Lewis, uh, who warns of the humanitarian theory of punishment that is permeating our day. Witness Miniger's book, The Crime of Punishment. And he says about, Lewis says about this humanitarian theory of punishment. He says, it removes from punishment the concept of desert. And what he means is that instead of saying, This man is guilty. He deserves punishment. The humanitarian theory says this man is sick. He needs treatment. And they're going to treat him. And that treatment will be punishment of one form or another. He will be detained. He will be put through shock therapy or psychotherapy or some other therapy, whether he wants it or not. It's still punishment. But we've removed the concept of desert. So then you can punish anybody. You see, he can punish you whether you deserve it or not. As he says, the only connecting link between (coughs) uh, punishment and justice is the concept of desert, that the man deserves punishment. And justice requires it. But the humanitarian theory moves it. Get some feel of what he's talking about and how it might apply to you. Well, y'all are you fundamentalists sitting here. (coughs) Over in, further on, he quotes Harry Overstreet's book, The great enterprise where Dr. Overstreet says a man, for example, may be angrily against public housing, the Tennessee Valley Authority, financial and technical aid to backward countries, organized labor, and the preaching of social rather than salvational religion. He may be against those things. He may be against the social gospel. Such people may appear normal in the sense that they are able to hold down a job and otherwise maintain their status as members of society. But they are, we now recognize, well along the road toward mental illness. And all of a sudden we see what the humanitarian theory opens the door to. Forced treatment of all you fundamentalists. I'm glad I'm not one. Uh, Other editorials and articles in there, uh, E.L.H. Taylor says that the humanitarian theory removes the concept of individual responsibility. He's not responsible, which is the foundation of all legislation. And again, he points out that it was the church that first introduced into Western nations capital punishment. As he says, prior to the church's influence... In the Western nations, in your old Germanic nations, it was possible to provide war or man price as a positive expiation of the crime of murder. You could kill someone and then just pay some money. That was provided under law. Then thanks to the influence of the Christian church stating that man was in the image of God and must not be killed in this way, The death of a person came to be regarded as so grave an offense that it could only be expiated by the death of the killer. In other words, it was no longer possible to get away with murder by making a simple money payment in exchange for the human life destroyed. The humanitarian theory doesn't increase the worth of man, it devalues man. When we do away with capital punishment, we devalue man. We make him a beast. Again... uh, he points out <coughs> that this does not, capital punishment does not conflict with the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. The Hebrew rendering of the sixth commandment is thou shalt do no murder. Any modern translation, good one, will put it that way. In the 20th chapter, that commandment is given of Exodus. In the 21st chapter, capital punishment is required in Exodus. A text without a context is a pretext. Capital punishment is biblical. Aiken Taylor, in one of the articles in there, entitled Capital Punishment, Right and Necessary, points out the need to distinguish between personal ethics and state ethics. As far as the New Testament teaching about personal ethics, we're to turn the other cheek, we're not to resist evil, and so on. We're to love our enemies. Those instructions were never given to the state. The state's not to turn the other cheek. The state is to follow strict justice. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's for the state. That's for the judge. And the state is told that its place under God is to punish the evildoer. To establish law and order. And it's been given the power of the sword, according to Romans 13, in order to carry out God's instructions to the state. We mustn't confuse Christian personal ethics that I'm personally to turn the other cheek to someone who hurts me and what the state is to do. Again, uh, Aiken Taylor points out that our Lord's atonement was of the nature of retribution. It was of the nature of a satisfaction to divine justice for our sin. We were rebels. We deserved punishment. We deserved hell. God, in his infinite mercy did not do away with the concept of law and justice. He provided satisfaction himself by sending his own son to die for our sin. The thief on the cross had it right. He said, we receive the just due of our deeds. This man has done nothing amiss. Jesus had done nothing amiss, but he was dying in our stead. And undergoing not just physical death, but the pangs of hell on the cross for our sin. Because God has a sense of justice. Has application to legislation on capital punishment. It has application to legislation on abortion. I mentioned these two parents being referred to me. Abortion has become a very live issue. Again, legislation pending in state after state after state to, to make much more permissive our laws on abortion. Uh, <clears throat> the question of whether or not it's murder has to do with whether or not the infant has a soul. In one sense, the question revolves around this. At what point does this infant have a soul? And There are various approaches to trying to ascertain this. This is something that theologians have debated over the years, for generations. But it's become a very live issue in our day, naturally. Someone has said, well, you can manipulate the cell that's been fertilized here and surgically cause that cell to divide and form twins. Now, obviously, if we're going to have two children born due to our manipulation, uh, the soul must come after that point. Or either God had to quick add another soul when we manipulated that. Well, why can't the soul divide too? And we don't know anything about that. Uh, That doesn't seem to be too good a procedure to decide whether this has a soul or not. Someone else says, well, maybe the soul's connected with the mind and you got brain waves. When does a child have brain waves? Seventh month, they can detect brain waves. That doesn't seem to be too solid a way to go about it. Does the Bible say anything that would give us any clues as to at what point this uh, thing that's been conceived have a soul and become a uh, human being as we know a human being to be? When we look at the Bible, we find some interesting things. We find John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb in the presence of Jesus Christ in his mother's womb. We find, in a sense, uh, a reaction on the part of the infant still in the womb in the presence of his Lord. Does Does this connote... Uh, something about that infant having a soul at that point, it does to me. In the 51st Psalm, in the 5th verse, David says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not speaking that she sinned in the act of conception, but he's saying that he was sinful from the moment of conception, because she had begotten a sinful thing due to original sin, that what she would bring forth would be tainted with sin, Have a fallen nature. But you notice he didn't say, Behold, it was shapen in iniquity. He says, I. From the moment of conception, he referred to it as I. Same I that came forth. The passage that weighs more than any other passage to me is one in Exodus chapter 21. Look at that, if you will, for a moment. In the 22nd verse of Exodus 21. In the King James, it reads like this. If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. If any mischief follow, then shalt thou give life for life. Now, the impression you get as you read the King James translation is that if this woman somehow seeks to establish peace between two men who are fighting and she is harmed, she's with child and she's harmed and she has a miscarriage, but no harm is done to her, that then the man who caused her to have a miscarriage will have to pay her husband some money, whatever the husband lays upon him. But if she dies or some harm is caused to her, life for life, wound for wound, so on. That's the impression you get as you read the King James. Try reading it like this. Look at it carefully. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit come forth as a live child and lives... Then the man simply pays money. He pays because he endangered her life and the life of the child. But the child has come forth and is alive and is all right. But if mischief follow to either the child or the mother, life for life. Now, which interpretation is correct? In a recent book that's come out, Birth Control and the Christian which is published by the Christian Medical Society and is the report of a convention of theologians and Christian doctors to discuss these issues as <clears throat> a paper in here by John Montgomery, who is one of the great Lutheran evangelical theologians of our day, John Montgomery. And he points out, in reference to this passage, that <clears throat> your great Old Testament commentators particularly Cal and DeLeach, who have written the classic set of commentaries on the Old Testament of all time. They take the interpretation which I just gave, and they base it on the fact that the child referred to, says, if men strive and hurt a woman with child, the Hebrew word is yelled, which means a, a full-grown child, in effect, a child who is fully human, not full-grown, but fully human, This woman has a child, there's no question about the child being uh, able to live and so on when it comes forth. He says uh, that uh, Yelid only denotes a child as fully developed, as a fully developed human being, and so on. Not the fruit of the womb before it has assumed a human form. And uh, there was another Hebrew word that could have been used, and so uh, he says it's obvious. Uh, that we're speaking here of the child uh, departing in the sense of coming forth and living. He quotes also one of the ablest Jewish commentators of our day on this passage. And here is the Jewish commentator, Ermberto Casueto, and he says... If any mischief happen, that is, if the woman dies or the children die, then you shall give life for life. If these men are correct, as I believe they are, abortion is murder. Now, let's just take that as a possibility for a minute. And then let's reflect on the fact that In the first four months in New York State, since the recent uh, allowing of abortion on demand, 50,000 abortions in uh, terms of public agencies performing them, another 20,000 probably in terms of private agencies performing them in the first four months, and presently the rate's 600 a week. In Japan, 750,000 a year. In Hungary, 1965, for every 100 children born, there were 135 abortions. More children aborted than born. Tremendous implications for our national legislation and for our own actions, both in the area of capital punishment and in the area of abortion. Not only does it have an application to our national legislation, This matter of the cities of refuge have an application to our personal salvation. Matthew Henry says, Here is a great deal of good gospel couched under the type and figure of the cities of refuge. Over in Hebrews 6.18, the writer may well have in view the cities of refuge as a picture of salvation in Christ when he speaks of we who have fled for refuge. To lay hold upon the hope set before us. Speaking of fleeing to Christ. We who have fled for refuge. and uh, Charles Spurgeon in the sermon says, Jesus is our city of refuge. The law of God is the avenger of blood. Christ who died for our sins, who died for our failure to keep that fiery law of God, is our city of refuge. We must flee to him. brings forth the urgency doesn't it if the man loitered if the man uh, didn't flee with all of his might why surely the avenger would overtake him and he would die and if we're caught it's not just physical death it's eternal death it brings forth uh, the stupidity of neglecting to take Christ how shall we escape says the writer of Hebrews if we neglect so great a salvation Brings forth our security once we've run to Christ. And this is really what that passage in Hebrews is dealing with. It says, God who cannot lie by two immutable things, his oath and his covenant, promises those who have fled for Christ that they're safe. Uh, Tremendous promise. You only have to touch the hem of his garment. You, You only have to put your faith in Christ as your Savior and surrender your will to him. A weak faith saves if it's faith in Jesus Christ. Only reach the border around the city, and you're saved. It brings forth the necessity of abiding in Christ once we've come to Christ. In that same sixth chapter of Hebrews, there's that terrible warning about if we've once tasted of the powers of the world to come and of the Holy Ghost, and then we turn again and go back to our old ways, it's impossible to renew us again unto repentance. We must abide in Christ. In John 15, where Jesus says, Abide in me. He says, If a branch abides not in the vine, it is cast forth and withered. Men gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. He says, You must abide in me. And he emphasizes obedience and faith as the way of abiding. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. True, we believe that once a man is genuinely saved, he will Persevere. He will go on in the faith. How do you know that you're saved? By abiding in Jesus Christ. It's something that we must do. We're told to abide. It's crucial. We go outside of the borders. And then the avenger will overtake us. Brethren, uh, this is real solemn. The standpoint of abortion. If it's as we have pictured it here today. Then this diary of an unborn child, which appeared in a Roman Catholic magazine, in which certainly in a sense is overstated, yet contains the basic element of truth that we've fought for here, comes home with tremendous impact. Let me read this diary of an unborn child. October the 5th, the day my life began. My parents do not know it yet. I'm as small as a seed of an apple, but it's I already. And I'm to be a girl. I shall have blonde hair and azure eyes. Just about everything is settled, though, even the fact that I shall love flowers. October 19th. Some say that I'm not a real person yet, that only my mother exists. But I am a real person, just as a small crumb of bread is yet truly bread. My mother is and I am. October 25th. My heart began to beat today all by itself. From now on, it shall gently beat for the rest of my life without ever stopping to rest. And after many years, it will tire. It will stop. And then I shall die. November 2nd. I'm growing a bit every day. My arms and legs are beginning to take shape. But I have to wait a long time yet before those little legs will raise me to my mother's arms, before these little arms will be able to gather flowers and embrace my father. November 12th. Tiny fingers are beginning to form on my hands. Funny how small they are. I shall be able to stroke my mother's hair with them, and I shall take her hair to my mouth, and she will probably say, Oh, no, no, dear. November 20th. It wasn't until today that the doctor told Mom that I'm living here under her heart. Oh, how happy she must be. Are you happy, Mom? November 25th. My Mom and Dad are probably thinking about a name for me, but they don't even know that I'm a girl. They're probably saying Andy, but I want to be called Kathy. I'm getting so big already. December 24th. I wonder if mom hears the whisperings of my heart. Some children come into the world a little sick, and then delicate hands of the doctor perform miracles to bring them to health. But my heart is strong and healthy. It beats so evenly, tup, tup, tup. You have a little healthy daughter, mom. December 28th. The day my mother killed me. That's biblical. I wonder, can you get the other picture of fleeing to Christ? Here are two men in the city. They go out in the field to work together. As they're working, chopping wood, suddenly the axe handle flies off of one's handle and hits the other. The axe head hits the other. He drops, the man rushes over and kneels beside him and he's dead. He raises up. He sees others beginning to look his way. He sees the man's brother across the field beginning to come towards him. He drops everything, he turns and he runs. He hits that road that goes to the city of refuge. He rips off his garments, he throws everything behind him. Every obstacle out of the way, he runs. The man's behind him now. He's pushing on. He runs, he runs. He can see the city in the distance. The man is closer. Suddenly he throws himself across that border. And he's safe. What about you? Have you fled to Christ? That fiery law of God is chasing you. Have you trusted in Christ alone or have you been loitering on the way? What folly if you're overtaken and you can be today? You're dead and ruined forever. Doomed. Will you take Christ today, sinner? If you haven't already, let's bow in prayer. Right now, as our heads are bowed, if you have never committed your life to Christ, but you really feel the need, you know that it's folly to delay And you are willing to seek your refuge in him. In your heart, pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, what folly! I acknowledge my guilt, and I do flee to you. I put my trust in you right now. I lay hold of you by faith. I surrender my will to you as my Lord and Master. In Jesus' name, amen.